Right, well, um, good evening uh, all. Welcome to those of you who are uh, from outside the LSE and of course for those who are from within it. Uh, this is an event uh, run under the auspices of British Government at LSE, which is uh, a new initiative bringing people in all parts of the school uh, together to um, on events and indeed promote research and indeed in the longer term we'd like more than that uh, under the general heading of British Government. And uh, this evening our guest is the Right Honourable Peter Hayne MP who has just published a book we hear an outside and outside in uh, which is um, somewhere I guess between uh, an autobiography and a memoir and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Um, Peter Hayne is a leading British politician, uh, having been born in Kenya, I think I got that right, then lived in South Africa for his formative years, at a time when that country uh, was governed within a regime committed to apartheid, and I'm sure he'll say a bit more about that in a moment. His family had to leave South Africa and move to the United Kingdom, and thereafter he lived in London where he joined the anti-apartheid movement, the Young Liberals and the Anti-Nazi League. He became famous, I think it's fair to say, somewhat infamous if you remember the Maribyrn Cricket Club, uh, as a result of the Stop the 70 tour, which was uh, a very high profile effort in this country to stop uh, a tour to this country, England, by the South African team and included or pivoted around at one level a critical Basil Dolivera who died recently, the great South African cricketer. He then joined Labour in the, 90, in the late 1970s, I'd say just before its long catastrophic period uh, in opposition and its particularly baleful 1983 general election result, but then um, was a member of got into Parliament for the Neath South Wales constituency at the end of the 1990s and then was a cabinet minister in both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's administrations uh, during the late 90, or the mid to late 1990s, sorry, the, during the 2000s and into the last general election. His book, I think it's fair to say, is not one, and there's been a fair number of these recently, a sort of kiss and tell um, up to the minute account of how awful Gordon Brown's government was, and there's been a fair number of those. I think it's a much more measured book, uh, more like a traditional memoir, allowing some exposition about the life and times, and particularly the times that the politicians lived through, as well as being, bringing us observations on uh, politics in South Africa and Africa more generally in the past, all the way through to reconciliation in Northern Ireland and UK politics today. But the way we're going to do this is perhaps to begin, uh, allowing Peter Haynes to say rather more about himself and more eloquently than I have, and about the book and why it was written, and then perhaps one or two questions from me and then we'll open it out for a, a more general set of questions about the book, Apartheid, South Africa, Britain Today, Blair and Brown, whatever. Peter Haynes. Thanks very much, Tony, and thank you all for coming this evening, and I'm looking forward to your questions uh, in a moment. I'm not quite sure what to t make of the fact that Tony described it as not a kiss-and-tell book. It means probably nobody will buy it in the <laughs> climate. 
But I'm rather proud that it isn't, because I hope that I've written something that is readable, of interest, and which uh, will be durable. Because a lot of the politicians' kiss-and-tell stuff uh, gets enormous serialization, and then <coughs> is remainder a little while afterwards. And I didn't want that to happen to this, although Sunday Times have been uh, good enough to serialize uh, it over the last three weeks. I, I've called it Outside In because I started off as very much an outsider, brought up in South Africa, my childhood there. My parents, very, very brave anti-apartheid uh, activists, exceptionally for young whites, gave up a life of relative privilege uh, and although we were not particularly well off, there was no better life than for that for a white South African family in almost anywhere in the world in the 50s and the 60s and well be well after that. And they felt very strongly about the system around them and there are a whole lot of questions as to why that happened. But I, just to give you a flavour of what it was like, um, I remember a cartoon in one of the daily papers by the Minister for Security which said um, under the, uh, the caption was, go and find, this is to one of his underlings, go and find Mrs. Adelaine Hayne, my mother, find out what she's doing and tell her she mustn't. <laughs> and a little while after that, they were picked up in the middle of the night and I was woken up as an 11 year old and told that they would be taken off to jail. It's one of my earliest political memories. And they were never charged, but just disappeared into jail for a while. And then, in 1963, my mother was banned. The banning order mean, meant you couldn't take part in political activity. That was its main objective. Uh, you couldn't even mix with one other, more than one other person. So it's socially somewhat restrictive, as you can see. And when they held diplomatic parties at our house, uh, I, as a youngster, was deputed to go and bring visiting diplomats in one by one from the living room to meet her sitting at the kitchen table so that she didn't contravene the terms of her ban. That was a kind of Orwellian existence. And then it goes one step further because they banned my dad a year later in 1964. One of the chief uh, clauses in a banning order is you're not allowed to communicate with another banned person. <laughs> and they'd never banned a married couple before and so they had exceptionally to give them permission to talk to each other. They had special clauses unique to those two, allowing them to talk to another banned person in which, it, you know, their, hus their husband or wife. Um, so these kind of things happened to us and eventually, particularly after a traumatic experience when a close family friend was executed, the first and the only white to be executed in the struggle against apartheid, and that was uh, especially difficult to experience to go through. And I ended up reading the address at his funeral as a 15-year-old because nobody else was available. They wouldn't let my parents do it. And at the last minute, um, I stepped in. So I suppose that's the first time I took any public role in, in any sense. And you know, it was quite a uh, frightening experience uh, to undergo. They stopped my father working as an architect. And so we had to leave in 1966 when I was 16 and come into exile in Britain. And one of the reasons I suppose I'm sitting here, Tony, and talking to you after the experience of being 12 years in our last Labour government, 
is that uh, my parents said, you know, our plant aid is there to stay, we'll continue to struggle against it as best we can, but we're never going back because there's no chance of going back, settle into this community, whereas a lot of anti-apartheid exiles saw themselves as exiles waiting to go back. And I then got involved in all sorts of radical activity, and indeed I remember coming to LSE this evening, I remember um, a great sort of episode in 1968 in that middle of that radical period of youth politics when the LSE gates were broken down by one of its lecturers involved, Robin Blackburn, who yeah. probably got the sack, I think, uh, from the LSE. Um, the politics department, I know today, is much more respectable uh, <laughs> institution and wouldn't dare do things like that, nor would the students. But that was a period of, of direct action and student sit-ins and action against the Vietnam War, the, uh, the, the, the revolt in Paris, and I got caught up in all of that. And when then, in, and I was always a sports fan, a cricket and rugby and a football fanatic, and, and motor racing as well, actually, just to compound the crime. <laughs> And uh, I remember, and I still to this day turn to sports pages before I turn to the newspapers. And some of my cabinet colleagues used to look askance at me when we were sort of, uh, when they realised what my reading habits were. But why is this important? Because when the uh, Basil D'Oliveira, who was the coloured South African cricketer, coloured being a mixed race, was chosen. Uh, to, to play for England because he was denied the opportunity to play for the country of his birth. South Africa then had only whites only teams. I as a kid only played with or against whites. It was illegal to play school or club or any other kind of sport against or with anybody else from a diff different colour skin. And Dolivera had to come across in the 1960s to play, for, and to play in England, county cricket, and he was so good he was selected for England. And then it came to the 1968 tour to, to South Africa, and the English selectors, after he just, uh, I think, uh, scored 153 runs, or that sort of order, just inexplicably omitted him. There was outrage, and it turned out later, as we suspected at the time, a deal had been done with South Africans not to select him. There was outrage. Somebody selected, uh, stood down, and he was selected. And at that point, the South African Prime Minister denounced the team as the team of the anti-apartheid movement, because Dolivera would tour the country. Clearly absurd, but having that having happened, four months later, the MCC, the Marylebone Cricket Club, then announced that they were inviting the white South Africans to come and tour Britain in 1970. And I was outraged by this and announced without any kind of, um, in a press release, without any kind of, as it were, movement behind me, that we were going to take direct action to stop this, using some of the direct action tactics that had been very much the flavour of that period. And so that's what we did, and we ran on pitches, and we interrupted games, we chained ourselves to goalposts in 1969-70 in the Springbok Rugby Tour. One um, young woman was booked into the Springbok Team Hotel, and she went around in the middle of the night and gummed up the, the bedroom door locks with a solidifying agent. <laughs> so they couldn't get out in the morning. On the morning of the Twickenham International, they had to break down the doors to get out. And then we occupied the team coach, uh, so they had to cut people loose from that. Those are the kind of things we were doing. Kind of long story short, the cricket tour that they'd invited was cancelled. I think the headline in The Guardian was Haynes Stop Play. 
not, not my headline, but theirs. Uh, and that propelled me into a certain notoriety. I was prosecuted for conspiracy in 1972. Accounts of the trial in the book, the judge did his best to convict me. Um, but I managed to get off um, uh, by conducting my own defence, partly because as my QC advised me at the time, if we conduct your defence, the judge will at some point say to us, what is your client's defence in law? And the answer will be he doesn't have one. Whereas if you conduct your own defence, you can appeal to the jury on a political basis, which is what I managed to do. And then I was um, prosecuted again three uh, that Prosecution, by the way, is financed by the South Africans. It was a private prosecution, unusually. Then three years later, I was um, uh, the victim of a mistaken identity case set up for a bank theft. Uh, an extraordinary case of robbing a bank near my home in southwest London. <laughs> the bizarre. The Barclays Bank, against which I demonstrated because of their, their <laughs> links in South Africa, that was committed by a South African double, the evidence later showed. They sent me a letter bomb in the meantime, which fortunately didn't go off or you wouldn't be having this talk this evening. And I then worked for the trade union movement. At my job interview for the post office workers union, I was expecting to be asked about uh, my expertise in economics and pay bargaining and policy. Instead of which the first question was, do you hate cricket? <laughs> uh, my notoriety having uh, followed me there. And I joined the Labour Party, having been active in the Young Liberals, who were a very radical socialist group in the late 60s and early 70s. Joined the Labour Party in 1977, and that brings us up to speed where we got to. Okay, right, thank you very much. I mean, by being, I mean, going from being a young Liberal into the Labour Party, I mean, in the book you explain that you feared that you would be ostracised or that there would be a, a, a sense that if you, did, if you made this shift that you would be seen as having sold out or you, you know, the kind of things that you say, I think, that when other people have crossed the floor subsequently you've been to sort of talk to them. And what impelled you to leave? And did you think the Liberal, because the Liberals could never get into power, the time had come to move on to another party that might, or was it a, a, a more an ideological, philosophical change? There's an ideological change. I mean, people ascribe all sorts of motives they did to me then. Uh, I didn't join because I wanted to become an MP. I never considered in the late 60s, early 70s, becoming an MP, let alone a cabinet minister. Just the thought had never crossed my mind. They were a rather kind of suspicious species mm. in my mind at the time. And uh, so, no, I didn't do it for that reason. I'd always been, I'd, I'd, when I'd formed my politics in the late 60s and read a lot, I, 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 just, I, I came to the view that I was a libertarian socialist, as were many young liberals at the time, including the leadership, and we wrote about that. What do I mean by that? Never believed in, in the big states or nationalization. I more believed in socialism as an empowering force, uh, industrial democracy rather than nationalisation in, in a nutshell, decentralising power as much as possible. And increasingly as I ceased to be a young young liberal and uh, an older young liberal, I couldn't sort of pretend to be young for much longer in my 20s, I just didn't feel comfortable in the Liberal Party. Whereas Tony Benn and the left were on the march in the Labour Party in the mid to late 1970s and I've got very much sort of identified with that. 
I mean, do you think the, I mean, you describe yourself as a libertarian socialist, but do you think that the, the suspicion of the state, which is by no means common uh, on the left, came from your experience in South Africa? I and mean, was it a sense that the state there was repressive and, in your terms, bad, in many people's <coughs> terms, bad? Is it that that you think fed you the idea that, a, that the state shouldn't be too big? or shouldn't be too powerful. I, I doubt that actually. I think it was more because, you know, Britain was an incredible democracy compared with what we've been used to. The newspapers over there were heavily censored. The, the BBC's equivalent just only broadcast state propaganda. Mm. I don't think it was that reason. It was a, just as I, I read more and started to soak up the whole atmosphere of that period, that's what I felt most comfortable with. You know, if you look back, um, I would argue, in fact, I've written about this, there are two strands in, in socialism. There's the, if you like, state socialism, which at its revolutionary end is Leninism, and at its um, reformist, social democratic end is Labour governments and, uh, and the webs and so on. Yeah. Uh, whereas there's a libertarian socialism, which has an equally important pedigree, but always secondary in, in, in socialist sort of mainstream which is much more empowering and bottom-up socialism, and that's what I identify with much more than the alternative. And I mean, coming into modern politics, New Labour, which you were inevitably part of the cabinet as an MP and a cabinet minister, was identified with a radical shift to the centre, to put it generously, the centre in Labour Party terms. I mean, did you feel comfortable with that shift, given that your politics sound as if they're slightly to the left of them, many of your contacts as described in the book on the left of the party, yet Tony Blair, New Labour, took Labour well to the centre, some people would say positioning it on the centre-right, but certainly centre-centre. Did you feel comfortable with that? Not entirely, but perhaps if I just explain briefly the journey here. When I joined the Labour Party, as I explained, I was you know, very excited by what Tony Benn was saying, Neil Kinnock and others. Uh, the Labour Party had been run very much as a kind of by a right-wing clique. Mm. The membership were had very little say over who their MPs were. MPs visited their constituencies once a month, if you were lucky, and there wasn't real accountability. So there was a whole desire to democratise the party, and I was very much involved with that. We used to go along to annual conferences, plotting away, often the, the day before in Tony Bren's um, front room, um, to defeat the leadership. And it was all very exciting, except the voters got rather excluded from this, um, these, this, this enterprise. And I then became part of the Labour Coordinating Committee, a pressure group in the 1980s, and vice chair of it uh, in 1981, which was actually more linked with um, Neil Kinnock and his attempts of, if you like, the soft left, as opposed to the hard left, to create a much more popular, electable form of Labour Party mm -hmm. that was nevertheless rooted in its values. And Tony Blair, in a way, took on that modernisation programme a big stage further. My argument with him was not that he was determined to win for Labour, which I think was his great achievement, and, and the discipline of that. They turned us into an electable force, although arguably you could say John Smith begun that, and Neil Kinnock before him. But I thought in the process we jettisoned too, too much of our values, and so I was kind of, um, when he put me in his front bench team for a few years in opposition before we won, and then in government for, 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 for the rest of government, I, um, 
I was always a kind of rather independently minded member of the government. Uh, on the one hand, sharing the discipline of winning, and on the other hand, wishing that he'd also stuck much more to Labour's principles and, and socialist values, which I think were would have made us actually an even more general <coughs> government than we, than, than we proved to be. Okay, I'm going to open this up for everybody can ask a question or anybody wants to in a moment. But was one, if I can just wind right back to the beginning of the story in the book. You mentioned your parents, and you clearly very close to them, and they clearly powerfully influenced you. What, what do you think motivated them in this society? You described South Africa an ideal place to live if you're white, uh, black or coloured servants, and, 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 and I, in many ways an idealised world. What made them I mean, idealised for a tiny part of the population? What do you think galvanised them into this political approach to the regime? It's actually quite a difficult question to answer that, and I'm not sure that I know the answer, or that they do when I'm discussing with them, but they, there was nothing in their backgrounds to suggest a passionate anti-racist sort of or anti-apartheid anti government stance at all, actually. My dad had fought in the Second World War, I think that gave him, as a 19-year-old, he was wounded um, in, in Italy, and I think that gave him a, a broader perspective. Uh, and although he would not say radicalise him, I just think it gave him a different view of life. Then his first job, which was when I was born, they were both South African born, my parents, was in Nairobi, and I happened to arrive while they were there for a year. And they were struck by the more liberal, in racial terms, atmosphere there, even though it was a traditional British colony with a segregated white elite and uh, ruling the place. Um, and I think that sort of changed their attitudes. And when they came back from Kenya, they were um, approached to join the Liberal Party of South Africa, which was a non-racial party. Uh, at that stage, some of the organizations had already been banned, the opposition parties. And so they got involved there. And then they came across to Britain for a couple of years, and their kids, like me, came with them. I started my schooling here in 56 to 58. And they read The Guardian and The Observer, uh, and Suez was on at the time. I think that gave them a more enlightened view about Kenya. So that that's part of it. Then when they they got back, they just got sucked into frenetic anti-apartheid activity. My mother was the main one. My dad was working. She was bringing the kids up in the more traditional uh, fashion of the time. But she became the chief activist and the sort of notorious um, opponent of the security police. Okay. Right, would anybody like to open up with it? Yeah, I mean, can you just uh, give a sense of who you are and where you're from, if you wish? Thank you. Um, my name is John Ewell, and my question is on South Africa. Um, what was most instrumental, do you think, in bringing down apartheid? Was it sanctions, or was it the growing civil disobedience inside the country? A combination of these factors and then something else. Um, the sanctions, from sporting sanctions, but particularly in the 1980s, loan sanctions, which were sort of more significantly applied principally by the Black Caucus in Congress in America, um, which had brought pressure to bear on the American administration, had a very significant effect on the economy. And then you had, as you implied, the sort of rise, the opposition having been pretty well resistance closed down when Nelson Mandela was 
first put in prison in 1963, and then again, the longest sentence in 1964, the leadership of the resistance was closed down in the 60s. It erupted again in 1976, uh, after the Soweto school students uprising, and a new generation of activists was thrown up there, including Steve Biko, that you may remember, who was killed in, in, uh, in police detention by the police. And that created a radicalized generation which then sort of spread over into the 1980s and you see really organized resistance of a kind that had been closed down before. Riots in townships, civil disobedience as you say. So that was making the place increasingly ungovernable, although the repression was fierce. So you get a combination of the international sanctions, the boycott campaigns of the anti-apartheid movement, very strong in Britain but worldwide increasingly, total isolation in sport, which they hated, by the way. White South Africans absolutely hated the, the sports isolation. Do not underestimate this. When Nelson Mandela, I'm not being self-serving in this, having been instrumental in it. Nelson Mandela, when he was released, said he thought that was the most single most decisive blow struck against the apartheid in the 1970s, when other resistance was difficult and boycott campaigns were difficult to achieve on trade and, and, and the economy. Uh, so it's a combination of all these things, and then you get to the point when, and this is crucial, it's not an accident that it all came to a head with the end of the Cold War. Because in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down, you know, one after another, the, the Soviet satellites, Romania and, and Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia and so on. Um, all <coughs> sought freedom and democracy, and the Soviet Empire collapsed. And the West's support for, for white South Africa was really in part to the point of going along with the racist regime. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, remember, <coughs> de, uh, denounced um, uh, Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. And some of the conservative MPs, I don't make a party point of this, never do a thing like that. <laughs> some of the conservative MPs sitting opposite me in the early 80s had been in meetings, in, in student union meetings when I was there, uh, representing the Federation of Conservative Students wearing that Hang Nelson Mandela badges. And a lot of that was to do with the Cold War because they saw white South Africa as an ally in the battle against communism. Uh, the ANC, Nelson Mandela's ANC, was um, backed by uh, Scandinavian countries, funded by Scandinavian social democratic countries, Sweden and elsewhere, but also by, by the Soviet Union. And they couldn't get support from the West, so they got it from where they could. Uh, and so the ANC was seen as kind of in the red corner, and the white South African apartheid governments in the, you know, the anti-red co uh, opposite corner. And when, when the Cold War ended, that kind of, a proxy kind of battle in Southern Africa being waged, uh, the reason for that disappeared. And then I think the regime got exhausted. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting study as to why the Soviet Empire collapsed. Uh, and I think in the end, the will to govern in that old repressive way, it wasn't working. The country was about to go into civil war. The economy was falling apart. Whites were complaining about their living standards. And that allowed President de Klerk, who had no previous record in his 25 years in the cabinet of the apartheid government of any sort of reformist zeal, suddenly to, to, to make this enormous leap because he realized that it couldn't continue.
And that's why I think all these things came together with Nelson Mandela's release in February 1990. I'm sorry it's a long answer to your question, but I'll try to give it. I mean, was, was de Klerk, given that you described him like that, instrumental? Or do you think some other person would have made the same decision a bit later? Was he just a pragmatist deep down and realised the, the game was up? I think it was that. It, there was nothing in his previous record to suggest this. I think he realised that this couldn't continue and that he would be the president who presided over the whole country falling into an abyss. And he preferred to be the president who actually showed tremendous courage at that point in just making a leap, crossing the Rubicon in a way that his predecessor, Boerter, had sort of half-heartedly tried to do, begun the negotiations with Mandela mm. and then backed off them. And de Klerk, I think, um, he deserves all the acclaim he's achieved he's got, but I think it was pragmatic more than anything else. One other point, however, which I think is crucial to this. Nelson Mandela walked free um, from prison in February 1990, and actually the day before I first, first visited the Neath constituency on a trail that led me to become its MP. That's another story entirely. Um, and uh, in the period between him walking free as president, and four years later, becoming elected president of his country, the first ever democratic election, because only blacks hadn't been allowed to vote in, the, in elections before then. There was more violence in South Africa, more political violence, than at any time in the country's history under a process. And some of the white elites, including de Klerk, as president, he must have known there were these um, death squads officially organized by the South African security services, killing uh, South African uh, opponents uh, and seeking to, to sow mayhem. So they still thought they could cling on to power. And even on the eve of the election in 1994, when I was there, privileged to be there as a, a, a parliamentary observer, seeing on the morning of the election just these queues way into the uh, the early morning haze as the, the mist rose and, and the sun came up in Soweto. There's thousands of people queuing to vote for the first time in their lives. But on the eve of that election, whites still thought that the ANC wouldn't win a majority and that they might still be able to um, cling on to a bit of power in some kind of coalition. Well, <coughs> that was a, always a myth, uh, but actually they did declare Mandela made uh, the clerk a vice president, mm -hmm. and president, and he did heal the nation. Yeah. Okay, very good. Right, lots of hands now. Uh, let's do some, there's no fair way of doing this, is there? Um, there, two, three, four, five. Okay, <coughs> gentlemen then. Yeah. You said earlier about... Can you say just roughly who you are? I'm, I'm Greg Campbell. Um, and you said earlier about how there are some elements of Tony Blair's reform of the Labour Party you weren't completely happy with. What in particular were you not comfortable with at the time? I thought it was right to change Clause 4 because Clause 4 had sort of had an old 1918 definition of you know, public ownership of the means of production and so on, and that clearly you know, the Labour Party was never going to do it. So what's the point of having it in the Constitution? and he gave a more modern and, and actually accurate uh, clause to replace it. But I think what he did was he defined his leadership very often against the party. 
Uh, and I don't think he needed to do that as much. He needed to have discipline in the run-up to 1997 because we'd been all over the place before that. It had been a bitterly divided party and divided parties as all students of, of politics as well as practitioners of politics like me know don't win elections. Um, and he was absolutely right to do that. I just think he could have done it in a way that appealed to Middle Britain, that also jettisoned Labour's past association with an anti-business, anti-private sector stance, which was ludicrous because you need a, a successful business community and a successful private sector that's entrepreneurial and, and wealth creating in order to create a decent society. Some of the things people like me come into politics to achieve, and Tony Blair as well, to create a decent health service and schools and so on, and universities for that matter. Um, but I just think, and I sort of describe in the book how I thought we increasingly lost touch with, with our, our supporters in government, and that was really my, my principal quarrel with him, and I, you know, I had the arguments with him, but at the end he was, you know, he was very good to me personally, I think he decided he preferred to have me inside the tent rather than outside, you know, the, the famous um, LBJ, yeah, I mean, in pissing out of the tent rather than pissing in, if, uh, the OSC was permitted to use that very unfriendly language. Um, I, you know, I, I always got on well with him, and he, I admired him tremendously as a, as a sheer, as a powerful figure and, a, and, a, and a, a, um, a politician. But I had my arguments with him, and you know, one of the reasons I stood for the deputy leader of the Labour Party in 2007 was to try and chart a different course for, for Labour, which I think would have been more successful. But that's history. Okay, others will pick that up, and then move across from. Well, I, I've actually got Paul Kelly, Government Department. I've actually got two <laughs> questions. One, one is to pick up that point. I mean, one could ask <coughs> whether or not Blair's success actually proves that you know he was maybe right, and that you can't have the electoral success that he provided and some more rich, you know, traditional Labour values-based policy and that's one of the debates that of course your party's having now about how you square purple book with black book with blue labor and all these other attempts to try exotic and exotic colors yes <laughs> so that that that's one side of the question i mean just to reflect on whether or not you know what blair showed was one of the problems <coughs> of how you become the most successful labor leader and you know keep Labour as a, a significant electoral force. But the other thing was just to go back a bit to your, um, which I think connects, goes back to, to, to your, your intellectual story in Labour and just to ask you to reflect a little bit on what you think a libertarian socialism would look like in, in the current climate. So if you were writing your solution to this, what, what give us some clue about what that might look like. I mean, first of all, I think, I think you know, that he was right to say that uh, for Labour to be electable, we had to occupy the centre ground. And actually, Cameron realised that when he became leader of the Conservative Party, he stood on that platform. Uh, he didn't, in my view, change his party very fundamentally, which is one of the reasons he didn't win. Although he's Prime Minister, um, he didn't actually win, unlike Tony Blair, who got a landslide victory. Um, but I, I think, so I think he was right about that. But it's always been my contention that you could achieve that and at the same time retain 
many more of your essential, the things that motivated me to join the party, the values of the Labour Party, uh, and the policies that flow from that, without, as it were, threatening that that middle ground base and, and going for the centre. So that that that's that's my point. The first one, in terms of libertarian socialism today as a as a philosophy. Well, for instance, I would be pushing much harder on um, uh, employee stakes in their own companies whether it's the John Lewis side of things or uh, positions on remuneration committees to decide what bonus levels uh, were applied to take a, t a contemporary example. Uh, I just think the German experience and elsewhere has shown that uh, industrial democracy is actually more efficient as well as more de democratic. And then on the constitutional front, this is a whole big other question, but um, I've always been in favour of decentralising power. That's one of the reasons I was so passionate about Welsh devolution and conceived of and was a leading figure in the Yes for Wales campaign that narrowly won that referendum in 1997. And if you fast forward to today, one of the reasons we're having this big constitutional debate is not just that Alex Salmond is um, sailing forth on an independence of the ticket, uh, but that actually devolution was asymmetrical that the English question has never been answered. Uh, and I've always thought that was a flaw in our approach to devolution, and it's left a kind of festering uh, sore. Uh, my view, which fits with my own personal philosophy, is you need to decentralise power within England. England is still a very centralised part of Britain. And with the abolition of the regional development agencies by the Conservative Liberal government, has been made even more centralised. So I'm in favour of a permissive form of decentralised power. London has its own elected authority, so it's set the benchmark. Why can't the, the rest of England not have power devolved to it as well? Could it be a city region kind of unit around somewhere like Manchester, for example, where the, the economy is very much city region based. It could be a regional government in the northeast of, of England, rejected, I know, in 2004, but rejected on a kind of Mickey Mouse offer where the powers were not really real and uh, the climate wasn't right. Under a Tory-led government, I think you'd easily win that referendum now. That's an idea, right. Okay, next. Um, not that they like it to grant it, by the way. Nice. Yep, gentlemen there, and then, <coughs> okay. I'd like to go back to South Africa, if I may, for a moment. Um, when I look at the government there now, it seems that it's corrupt. It seems that it's based on cronyism. It seems to me that they haven't made a huge success since they've taken over, and that under a different government within the NC, they could actually have made lots more improvements, and as a result, huge amount of uh, poverty, huge amount of crime in that country. How optimistic are you for the future of South Africa? I am optimistic for a variety of reasons. First of all, the South Africa today, even with the, the shortcomings which um, you've described and I'll come back to, is as night and day compared with what it was. I mean, it was an evil system of apartheid, one of the worst that the world's ever seen. I would say the worst racist tyranny that the world has ever encountered, even by comparison with Nazi Germany. And, um, you know, it's now a vibrant rainbow democracy. 
And democracy, and it's grappling with the problems that all democracies have. I mean, we've not been immune from corruption, as a, in fact, relatively recently. <laughs> Speaking as an MP, and not, not caught up in it myself. But we haven't been immune from that. Um, and I don't think we should get too high and mighty about it. But it is the case that there's too much corruption in South African politics today, no question about it. It is also the case that I think the ANC has, as it were, lost its moorings. I mean, the, the leadership of Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, Oliver Tambo, and all those stalwarts of the struggle um, gave them a very firm moral compass as well as a, a tremendous commitment to democracy. Even in Nelson Mandela's case as president, when it didn't particularly suit him and civic society was complaining about uh, an issue, he, um, called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was about to publish a report also critical of the ANC. He wanted it published. Thabo Mbeki's successor didn't. It was, a, it was a more of a party apparatchik. But I think the civil society in South Africa is much, much more deeply embedded, and the ANC is more rooted in democratic values to allow this as, as, as anything more than a kind of passing phase of a democratic transition. Um, I think the ANC will have to renew itself. I think it will have to return much more to its fundamental values if it's not to lose its way uh, and be consumed by the factionalism which exists at the present time. You say it hasn't done much about poverty. Well, I just want to make two points about that as briefly, Tony, if I can. First of all, I mean, they have electrif given electrification to millions and millions of homes. They have provided running water to millions and millions of homes and built millions of homes. The legacy of apartheid was a terrible legacy, an awful legacy of poverty, and almost more important than that, a deliberate policy of leaving the black majority um, without any skills. And if you compare South Africa as an economy today with China, and that's it's competing with China just as we are, as everybody is, um, the South African economy just does not, the people do not have the skills necessary, enough of them, to, 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 to compete. And so there's, you know, 70% unemployment in some black areas. You cannot overturn that legacy overnight. And to its great credit, the South African government under all of them, actually, have adopted a very rigorous macroeconomic and fiscal policy that is, as it were, uh, attracted foreign investment and gone with the grain of international finance. But that has meant, you know, you couldn't <laughs> build every house or electrify every township or bring water to every hamlet that you wanted to do. I mean, do you think that the ANC will evolve into not a left-right party, but a party that's based on its history and that other parties will then become a more plural, multi-party system. Is that what you'd expect to happen in the long term? It depends on the ANC, ANC itself. I think a, a political pluralism is essential to any democracy. I mean, that's what I've always believed. Any student of politics, I would have thought, would agree with that. Governments have to be challenged. Even Labour governments are ticked out of office from time to time because they need to renew themselves, painful though the experience was. Um, and I, you know, the ANC will have to renew itself. And there is already a very active opposition, the Democratic Alliance, where 
you know, is kind of brought under its umbrella are a lot of the different mm. opposition parties and is, is growing in influence and strength, including attracting some of the ANC's constituency. Uh, and I think that's healthy. It's really up to the ANC. If they want to kind of ad adopt a one-party government stance that becomes, you know, sort of born to rule sort of attitude, then I think they will, they will um, decline. Right. If they renew, then I think they're capable of uh, being successful. But ultimately, history shows that over a period, you tend to have um, multi-party democracy emerge one way or another. Okay, right, there's a gentleman there and then down here, yep. Thank you very much. Um, the name's um, Ewan Grant. I'm a former intelligence analyst with uh, Cust Customs and Excise, and uh, I note in this book here there's a number of extremely complimentary remarks about your work, which perhaps also explain why we're in the Wolfson Theatre and not in the Sheikh Zayed Theatre. Um, my, my question is extrapolating your um, South African experiences. Um, I've often thought that a lot of mainland British people, um, particularly English people, less so Scots and Welsh, are, are very naive about some of the dark sides of the problems of Northern Ireland in the past. And did you think that your South African experiences were useful in addressing and facing up in a way that perhaps some colleagues of either party had been less so in the past? Yes, I did, and, and others, commentators, journalists, um, have observed that as well. Uh, if I just, by the way, for the explanation, the rest of the book that you held up is The Merchant of Death, which is about a particular, that was my phrase on this character called Victor Boots, an ex-KGB agent who used to run arms into African conflict zones and get diamonds out to pay for them and fuel conflicts, and I kind of helped put him out of business by using parliamentary privilege for the first time to, as a foreign minister to name um, him and fellow arms traffickers uh, using intelligence supplied by MI6 and GCHQ. Uh, that had never been done before. It was done with their agreement, I should listen to that. Um, <laughs> so it, it wasn't... Yes, so yeah. let me just say MI6, GCHQ, through parliamentary privilege. Yeah. Wow. Uh, although it never been done before, I don't think it's been done since. Maybe it's never been done again. I don't know. But <laughs> it was quite some heavy lifting to get to the point where they all signed up to that. But um, that's what we did there. On on Northern Ireland, um, I'd answer that in two ways. First of all, when I arrived there, uh, Tony Blair pointed me there to do it in May 2005, and I was delighted with the job. Uh, really, really pleased. My wife wasn't, but um, <laughs> nor was my, my special advisor. Uh, but I thought it was a great opportunity. And everybody was very pessimistic because Ian Paisley, the fiery leader of unionism with a long history of uh, questionable activity in the past, had triumphed over the more moderate Ulster unionists of David Trimble. He'd been courageous in signing the Good Friday Agreement with uh, John Hume's SDLP from the nationalist side. And it, in turn, was vanquished by, um, uh, by Sinn Féin. So you had, if you like, the two most polarized parts of the uh, Catholic, Protestant, the nationalist, unionist divide. Uh, and I actually saw this with my South African background as not a reason for pessimism at all, but a reason for optimism. 
Why? Because as I had, my dad had always said to me as a teenager, and I came to understand, and it's really uh, in, uh, it, it, it exhibited by Nelson Mandela's life and his time in prison when he came to this understanding too, that the deal in South Africa was made between Mandela's and his, and his organization and the people who oppressed him and jailed him and his people. And really no other deal would stick. Uh, elements in the center had tried to do it and that had failed. And in, in, in the Northern Ireland, despite the courage of the more centrist groups, the Austinians, the SDLP, they had not managed to carry Sinn Féin on the one hand, which was sort of not given up its armed um, activity, uh, nor its criminal activity to finance that. And on the other hand, the DUP refused really to, to, to really come into the tent. So where they were, I thought if I could get them together, then we can crack this. So I was always optimistic. And the other insight, I think, was one of the reasons why this is called outside in is, as I said at the beginning, I was an outsider, became an insider of sorts, but always saw the inside of government in a rather different way. <clears throat> and um, I think that enabled me, I couldn't be seen as a traditional patrician Tory Secretary of State for Northern Ireland because I was the opposite, or even a Labour patrician Secretary of State for Northern Ireland because I wasn't that either. Uh, and I think not becoming, not being part of the British class system was important as well. Both the, the Unionists and the Republicans don't like Brits, <laughs> if I could put it in that neutral way. <laughs> um, that's, their, that's their stance. They feel continuously betrayed in the case of Unionists. In the case of Republicans, they want us to get the hell out of Ireland. There's their sort of stance. I was not a traditional Brit, although I've always been a British subject, born so in 1950. And so in a sense I was able to kind of build bridges without exaggerating at all, being over hyping my own role, able to build bridges and strike up relationships that quite possibly somebody else wouldn't have been able to. And while we're on Northern Ireland, I've more questions on there. I mean, you were Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and Secretary of State for Wales, which is none, and you're a Welsh MP. I mean, for a, as it were, yes, the, the boy born the, the in Kenya who lived in, in Ealing and then university in England. Um, what have you made of this tour of Celtic <laughs> parts of the United Kingdom? Well, well Wales I, in particular, Neath. I, I, Neath. I think I, the, the Neath people are fantastic. I mean, they must be to choose me as their MP, but uh, <laughs> no, I think the warmth and, and the solidarity and the sense of community that you still get, although it's retreating as it has done um, long before in, 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 in parts of England, is, is fantastic about Wales. Northern Ireland, funnily enough, shares many of the same characteristics. Family is important, it's always been important to me, so it is in Wales. Community is important. Education. Education is very important as a route up. Miners, remember, <coughs> save their pennies to establish um, libraries in South Wales uh, for people to get better educated. Um, I think the Celtic part of Britain is really important to what Britain is. And what, one of the main reasons why I wouldn't want Scotland to um, to, to go independent. I think the Scots would be much diminished for it, but I think Britain would be diminished for it. 
uh, and I think that um, Northern Ireland's in a separate place because the constitutional future of Northern Ireland will be settled by the Good Friday architecture. But I think the Celtic sort of part of Britain is terribly important. Okay, we'll come back perhaps to Scotland, and I'll we'll like to see that in a moment later. Um, there's a gentleman here then, Sorry. Yeah, I'm Gaius Vincent, and in 1977 I made the same short journey from the Young Liberals to the Labour Party. <laughs> but my useful part of my political work was aiding the uh, broadly left opposition groups in the, then Eastern Europe through the 80s. Um, and I wanted to ask you what parallels you really see, because the, the, the fall, the ultimate fall of those regimes was as, as unimaginable to many people who were involved in the early 80s as the fall of apartheid sort of seemed to your parents. So I wonder what sort of parallels you saw there. And, and, and a sort of related point, did, did, I was interested in uh, Tony Travers' observation that he, he felt people in the Labour Party, or the left of the Labour Party, weren't too critical of the state, weren't, weren't anxious about the nature of the state, because I mean, my, my experience was that a lot of people in the Labour Party have been anxious about the nature of the state and wary of it for, well, all the time I've been in the Labour Party, which is the same time as yourself. No, I, I would agree. I would agree with that last comment. I think there's always been a strong uh, part of the Labour Party which is suspicious of, of a big state um, uh, and wants to see, but, wants to, but, but also uh, a defender of good government the role of government, and that's our argument with a neoliberal approach to politics, which this present government is pursuing, um, and has always been, you know, pretty well with, well, an important part of the Tory party has been, and the right has certainly been. So uh, I think that's always always been the case. On the comparison between Eastern Central Europe changes and, and South Africa, I just make these observations. I think the Soviet, the Soviet sort of... Um, kind of paradigm had become exhausted. It wasn't delivering. And there was a comparison with South Africa as well. The economy was not producing for its citizens what, it, what they increasingly wanted, what their expectations were. And I think it got to a point, and you know, some of those changes were remarkably peaceful. I mean, just unimaginably peaceful. And the point, with the exception of the point I made about there being more political violence in those four years between Mandela's release and his accession to the presidency, nevertheless the transformation in South Africa was almost miraculous compared with what anybody could have imagined. And, and like you, none of us imagined this happening in that way. Um, uh, let alone, you know, that was true of the Eastern European sort of Soviet satellites. I think that gets to a point where, where a political elite sort of is exhausted. They don't have any bullets anymore. Not that they physically don't. <laughs> they do have the bullets, but they don't have the kind of will to just keep oppressing. Um, that certainly happened to Mubarak in uh, in Egypt, to the Tunisian uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember the, the, the ben, Ali. ben Ali, yeah, the Tunisian dictator. Uh, and it didn't happen in Libya. He fought to the end, but. Um, I think that happened in a way in South Africa. I just think the political elite there just got exhausted by its own oppression. I think that was a factor too. Yeah. And then uh, hi, Jack Tindell, uh, 30 year 
BSc Government and History student. Um, given the fact that you were participated in the devolution referendum in Wales so much and obviously been involved in a lot of uh, matters about the devolved assembly, what do you think is the best solution to combating Scottish nationalism? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I think like you, I'm a firm believer in decentralisation, but I don't really think that independence is in anyone's interest. But obviously, at the moment, the SNP have got quite a strong hand in, over the debate. What do you think is the best unionist solution to combating that? Can I add to that? Who do you think should lead the campaign? Yeah. <laughs> Among Westminster politicians, the, the case led from the UK. Which, which British politician would you like to see leading it? Well, I don't say this for sectarian reasons, but definitely not David Cameron. <laughs> I don't think he, he thinks that, though. <laughs> well, I think figures like Alistair Darling um, are very important. Ed Miliband is has made a very interesting speech today in which he talks about the, the vision and the promise of a progressive Britain as being about the ability of the stronger uh, parts of Britain to support the weaker parts, of the richer parts to support the, the, the poorer parts, and those poorer parts would include Wales, parts of Scotland, and also the northeast of England and elsewhere. And I think the great, one of the arguments we need to, to deploy to, um, there are many arguments in the unionist case for, for Britain. One that, it, from a progressive point of view, and, and Salmond has tried to appropriate some of that territory and step, you know, present himself as a progressive nationalist, um, that, that, that actually what you lose is the great opportunity of the resource of the whole of the British state and society to achieve progressive policies of redistribution from rich to poor, from you know, less well-off regions to less well-off regions from, from better-off ones. And I think Scotland will be the poorer for not having that either. Um, and this is not some kind of, as it were, subsidy forever, but a chance for those weaker and poorer parts to actually gain uh, the opportunity to, to, to level up. The other case is this, that I think you've got to present this argument as a case for Britain and not just a case why Scotland would be poorer. You know, so, you know, Scotland of course can be independent if it wants to. Personally, I think it will be weaker, uh, it won't have as much influence in the world, and uh, it might not get even back into the European Union, because I, I suspect the Spanish would veto it. Uh, you know, Sp Spain has real, and I spend a lot of time in Spain, mainly on holiday, but um, <laughs> Spain has real problems with the Basque country and with Catalonia, different, for different reasons, historically. And I think they would be really, really opposed to granting uh, European Union membership and would veto it for a, a part of a country which had seceded effectively. So I think this is a very young chart of waters for Scotland. But it isn't only, as it were, the dangers for the Scots, which I think are considerable. It's actually that we all lose together the greater strength which we have together in being a big player in the Security Council in the European Union uh, and elsewhere. We didn't win the Olympics, if I could use that analogy, by being a, a sort of white English image of Britain. We won the Olympics by being a multicultural, 
multinational, if you like, multi-faith society. That's what won it for us. Uh, and I think that's a big strength of Britain, and Scotland's very important for that. I think Gordon Brown might have a role. I mean, he, he surely would be, he'd be quite convincing. I think he'd be convincing to Scots. I mean, to Scots, yeah. Yes, uh, and he's sort of a powerful presence in Scotland. Alistair Darling put it well, however, that this campaign has got to be led from within Scotland. Uh, it can't, it plays into Alex Salmon's hands if it's led from Westminster politicians. But I think Westminster politicians um, are going to be important, including Welsh uh, uh, MPs, in putting a case for a unified Britain. Okay, question here. Hi, Anna Joy Rickard. I work in the voluntary sector and I'm a Labour Party member. You've seen huge change in situations where it never seemed possible that there would be change in your history. Um, what are the issues of today, of now, that you would, you're passionate about seeing change for, that maybe for those of us that haven't lived through or had, don't remember the big changes, things seem difficult or impossible? Yeah. I think at, at all times, Angela, the, the, the big struggles seem impossible. You know, apartheid seems such a kind of impregnable edifice for so long that you know even people like my parents or myself who fought and campaigned for decades found it you know impossible to conceive this thing actually falling over in the way that it did. And the same was true as you was we were just talking about Eastern Europe, Burma, some, somewhere I feel passionate about. I mean, it looks as if things are on the move there. The Aung San Suu Kyi's, you know, uh, sort of release and a new president. But you're never quite sure with the military there. Um, this is a world at the moment, however, which I think is at a very dangerous time. I think the Iran situation is extremely worrying. Uh, I doubt that um, Israel is going to allow the Iranians to to get the nuclear capability that is capable of being active. It's very dangerous if Israel strikes against um, Iran. Very dangerous indeed. And I think, you know, it's a worrying time for all sorts of reasons. This particular year, you know, pre-election year in America, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister is coming up for re-election. Um, it's extremely worrying. Uh, so, you know, and the, the sort of, on the other hand, the Arab Spring has unleashed a tide of democracy and reform there, which is complicated and unstable, but it's terribly important. And one of the other things that struck me as a Middle East minister, sorry, I'm straying beyond your question, but uh, I hope you find it interesting as I ruminate. But one of the things I found interesting about being a Middle East minister is going to even places like Saudi Arabia and finding the very high proportion of young, educated women. The demographics of Arab um, Islam, Islam uh, Islamic countries are very interesting. You've got they're very young, young places. More than half the Iranians are under the age of 25. Uh, and a lot are very highly educated, very highly educated. A lot of women are being highly educated in a way that never was possible before. And so you've got situations which I just think are not sustainable. I remember visiting a, a kind of an office block where you had highly qualified women in Saudi Arabia working in one um, kind of big office area 
and similarly highly qualified men working in another, but they couldn't work together. Now, you know, that's not sustainable and as an economic model or as a practical model. This business of women not being able to dry a bit in Saudi Arabia, you know, these things are, it's like some of the absurdities of apartheid where, um, you know, blacks were allowed to put on the undercoat as decorators but not to put on the top coat. <laughs> Literally. Uh, black um, builders could hand the bricks to a white bricklayer but not lay the bricks themselves. Those job reservation, there was legislation that actually enforced job reservation and de-skilling uh, as well, or rather prevented upskilling. Those things didn't become, you know, they were not sustainable in the end. And I don't think the, um, the denial of equal opportunities for women in, uh, under, in Muslim countries is sustainable either. And I think that's going to be a very powerful force for change. As to where you engage as an idealistic Labour Party member, like I said, you are. Well, I think the struggles against world poverty, uh, for um, you know, making sure that we get the fight against climate change. These are the big struggles of the future, big, big ones. If I was, uh, you know, my age when I was getting involved in the anti-apartheid, well, these were the, the campaigns I'd be out on the streets on, along with increasing, um, increasing sort of threats of food security and water security. Which I think are big, big threats for the future. I mean, you say out on the streets. Now, when you were the Occupy movements and things like well, that. Well, yeah, I'm going to come to think you, you're so ahead of me. I mean, when you were out on the streets and chaining yourself and gluing and all of that uh, in for a political cause, and you mentioned the late '60s and the gates at the LSE and all the things that happened at that time. I mean, are you, as it were, glad? or slightly saddened that the equivalent sense of engagement in Britain today is relatively limited. You mentioned the Occupy movement. Actually, the Occupy movement is nothing like as aggressive and vociferous as the kind of movements you're describing back in the 1960s. Um, I mean, has, has revolution finally died, such of it as ever there was in Britain? Is it now gone? Well, I can't claim to have ever been a revolutionary because I wasn't. Well, you were seen as that, then, weren't you? Well, real revolutionaries denounced me as a bit of a sellout, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, then, 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 then you say there were other people who were real revolutionaries. There were yeah. some at the time. No, I mean, uh, look, uh, what I'd happily accept is the added, uh, the, uh, the label of a militant radical activist that committed to nonviolence. I mean, I think there's still lots of signs of that. The, the, the student protests last year against um, the £9,000 fees were you know, I think vibrant um, expressions of opposition and, and, and a sense of energy, which, you know, I, I rather approved of, actually, watching it from my Westminster office as a by. I'm not talking about, you know, ransacking Tory party headquarters and all of that stuff. I'm not, not I don't, don't approve of that, but um, I think the, the action there... Uh, environmentalism is still a powerful spur for, for radical action. And you know, in the end, as you'll probably remember yourself, because I'm probably of a similar generation, um, student activism was never a majority. It was always, uh, you know, there's always a limited number of us who were these mad activists who'd um, run around doing things. And that's true of history, actually. It's only at certain moments where, you know, like in Tahrir Square, and where it becomes a mass movement, and that 
that, that happens at certain points in history. Now, it's worth remembering that in uh, 1968, which seems uh, in its carved as a big revolutionary year, in the London elections that year, the Labour Party did worse than at any time in history, and the Conservatives better. So it is, you're right, things move in different directions. Well, I remember time. somebody arguing that to me, uh, a political scientist arguing to me, that Harold Wilson lost the 1970 election unexpectedly in part two, when he's partly because we stopped the cricket tour. Right. <laughs> the opposite of winning football, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, right, gentleman there, and then a lady, oh, gentleman there, sorry. Good evening. Uh, my name's Lloyd, and I'm a lecturer um, in adult education. You call yourself a, an outsider. Um, you label yourself an outsider, and you describe the UK being quite multicultural. Um, I was just wondering who do you think the outsiders are, <clears throat> like nowadays, in terms of like politics, um, and especially with the lack of trust around politics. Do you, who do you think would the politics would benefit from having on board? So. I think that question carries with it the implication you're now an insider. Or <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why the book is not the outsider, it's outside in. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, you know, I can't claim to still be an outsider when I'm a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council and, uh, and other such um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, autobiographical experiences. Uh, but, what about outsiders today? Well, I think one of the things that is going to enrich our politics and is already starting to do so, um, and and will enrich our society provided it's managed properly, is that we we're increasingly a multi-ethnic, multicultural. I know the prime minister doesn't like that term, but it is actually true. Society and a lot of influences, as Britain has always been, you know, over the over its cent the centuries of our history as a nation, enriched by people coming from outside uh, to be become insiders, like I suppose I became. Okay, and uh, okay. I could just shout. <laughs> well, you better do why not, just in case it's been recorded or something, and they can't hear you shout. Hello there. Um, my name's Martin Rogers. I work here, and I'm a Labour Party member. I wanted to talk about uh, refounding Labour and what had come out of that as someone um, who describes himself a libertarian socialist a little bit to the left of uh, the traditional new Labour leadership where does Labour need to go now in terms of its ideology and its policies um, to win and also if I can sort of tack a second question on the end um, how important was Makai Rantini in terms of sport in South Africa you talked about Basil de, o de Oliveira but what about Makai Rantini He's a, cricket, a cricket aficionado like me. Matai oh, was a very good fast bowler, I think I'm right in saying, a black fast bowler. He was important because he was one of the first uh, black fast bowlers to, um, to, to be able to be selected on merits in, in the South African side, which had previously been all white and blacks, especially in cricket, were kind of denied opportunities. Uh, so he was very important in establishing that. that <coughs> You know the, the black uh, cricketers could be very good cricketers as well. On um, refounding Labour, I mean, we, when Ed Miliband asked me to begin and to lead a reform programme at the end of 2010, uh, running through last year, I chose the title refounding Labour because the more I looked at political parties, including our own, 
the more I thought they were increasingly obsolete. The model of a political party. You need political parties. No functioning democracy can really work without them. But if you look at what's been happening um, over the last 50 years or so, the proportion of party of voters being members of one of the major parties has fallen from 4% of the electorate to one, under 1%. There's been a dramatic decline in, part, in party membership of all parties. And that's quite, you know, it's quite a, a dramatic fall. In addition, you're finding that people are not joining any organisations as much as they used to, certainly traditional organisations as much as they used to in all spheres of life. Uh, and parties are victims of that too. But what you also find is there are lots of people who describe themselves as supporters. And although the American political system is very different from Britain's, that was one of the keys to Obama's success in, in 2008. He mobilized an army of supporters, as I say, with the qualification that America does not have political parties quite like ours, um, or is sort of institutionally embedded throughout the year and every year as ours are. They come together more around elections. But um, he, he kind of reached out beyond the Democratic Party. And I think that's what Labour has to do. There are potentially hundreds of thousands of supporters who will say they're Labour supporters and will sign up to be registered supporters if you ask them the question, provided they don't have to pay anything, uh, and provided they don't have to do anything, or especially provided they don't have to come to a meeting. <laughs> I always uh, tell the story about Labour Party meetings of the branch secretary who looked down a membership list and uh, came across a party member who hadn't been to a meeting for years and years and years, went round, knocked on his door and said, why weren't you at the last branch meeting? To which the reply was, if I had known it was the last branch meeting, I'd be there and celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> because they're not always the most exciting occupations to attend, for sure. LSE administrative meetings are very different. They're all very exciting and dynamic. But anyway, pass quickly by that. Um, the point is, people can be reached and involved, and are particularly online with the new social media, uh, and participate in policy making, for instance, online in a way that you know, means they don't necessarily have to turn up to an institutional gathering. But party activists and members are still crucial. So I think refounding Labour was about that. The other thing it was about is if you look at some of the key seats that we held completely against the swing, we should have lost um, Birmingham Edgbaston by a big majority. That, on paper, is a Tory seat. Uh, we should have lost the Vale of Cloyd in North Wales. We should have lost Oxford East. We certainly should have lost Barking to the BNP. The BNP vote went up, actually, people forget that. What they were defeated by is the Labour vote went up massively. Why, what is common to those three um, constituencies? An entirely different model of political organisation, involving volunteers by the hundred who don't <coughs> want to become party members, don't even see themselves as Labour Party kind of, uh, you know, uh, died in the wool backers but can be brought together to support the party if you've got a broader type of movement around the party rather than just an institution that talks to itself. That's what Refounding Labour is really about for me, is those two things, in, you know, involving supporters and changing the model of political organisation.
Back down to the front. Yeah. <coughs> Very kind, thanks. I wanted to pick up on, on their two questions. The uh, chap there was asking about outsiders. Surely aren't, aren't the outsiders, the big obvious outsiders, people who are probably outside this room as well, it's people who don't have degrees in this country and a foriority in the States, they're very angry and they're very excluded and they're very fed up with it and linking to the question was talked about about what's the big issue, well for a lot of people I think what lies behind the, bo the banker's bonus story is, is part of that because you know graduates and labourish leftish graduates probably think well you know these vast salaries ought to come down to say something like half a million people without degrees who do the sort of useful work think fifty thousands pushing it and, and and you know that's that's deeply emotive especially at a time of uh, economic strain and unemployment and exclusion and whatnot and, uh, and isn't that a big part of the story we're missing partly of what, what we are to the, the, the implied, and I can see you know, the sense that South Africa hasn't moved as fast as, given the very high expectations of it, it might have done. But actually, Britain, including under uh, a long period of Labour government, didn't see that much social movement either, it would be easy to argue. I think that question is implying that you know, all those years of government, all that money, and yet some people in Britain who are always excluded are still that much or worse so. Yeah, I, I think that this is the, the central fault line in our society at the present time. Leaving aside race and <coughs> questions and you know, the future of the UK, I think the growing gap between those at the very top and the rest, and, and I define you know, the rest is the rest actually, not just those at the bottom, is the real problem. If you look at what's happened in America, uh, certainly Anglo, um, sort of anglicized societies, less so Scandinavia, what you, you find is that the, the squeezed middle, to use um, Ed Miliband's phrase, and, and those below that, have fallen way behind, that middle class living standards and, and working class living standards are more or less stayed put uh, in, in monetary terms, actually fallen back relatively, right across the world. And that's created, I think, and then you've got the super rich sort of steaming off with their bonuses and, and all their other billions increasingly, and not just millions. And I think this is a big, big threat to the, the stability and the, the, the kind of any society that's at ease with itself. And just on picking up Tony's point, um, I, I would defend our record as a Labour government in this respect, although I would concede the point that you've made. We did more to lift those at the bottom up than any government had done for generations through the minimum wage, tax credits, uh, and, um, and the provision of high quality public services, which are now rapidly being dismantled uh, by this government. Um, uh, and uh, so I, I think we did a lot to lift those at the bottom and those, in, but, but what we didn't do is deal with the massive widening chasm of the super rich who are an increasingly global group steaming away and it's very difficult to to, to, to grapple with that problem given their, given their sort of mobility of capital and the mobility of their, their income as well. But it's certainly it's a big, big cause for the future. Okay. Same question there again, yeah.
We'll finish at eight, so we've got about nine, eight more minutes. So got a question, think of it now, stop at eight. You mentioned earlier about um, Tony Blair moving the Labour Party close to the centre and Cameron doing the same. And I was just asking, what do you think the key difference is between Labour Party and the Conservative Party now, and not a few billion spending, you know, 1% instead of 2 the actual fundamental differences between either ideology or the future? I actually think there's a fundamental difference of a kind that um, is as big as it's ever been about the role of government. And, and what the role of, of what a good society is. I think that what Cameron is doing is using the, the deficit and the need to rebalance our economy, which every sensible politician must accept to get the public finances back into balance, but is using that as an opportunity to really cut uh, the provision of public services and cut the size of government right down to a neoliberal kind of level. And I think that's an ideological, that's what he really wants to do. And it's just a shame that the Liberal Democrats have abandoned Keynes and uh, Beveridge and all those great Lloyd George and all those great liberal sort of ancestors to go along with this uh, extremely right-wing agenda. I don't accept that it's just a matter of a billion or two. I mean, there's there's a, a fundamental difference between reducing the deficit in the planned way that we were planning, that we had laid out, and in fact had started to do. Borrowing was coming down when we left office. Unemployment was falling. Growth was tentatively starting to rise. All of those indices have gone into reverse. Borrowing shot up. The deficits actually got worse. The prime objective of their policy to reduce the deficit, their policies have actually made the deficit worse. And Keynes could have pointed that out to them. They're repeating exactly the mistakes, it seems to me, in the 30s. So I think there's a bigger divide now um, than probably there's um, at almost any time in our, in our history. It's just differently expressed from, you know, a uh, hundred years ago. But, I mean, you know the origin of that question, don't you? You know, I mean, that all parties are now broadly in favour of enterprise. They may kind of make a divide between predatory and all other kind of companies, but they're broadly in favour of enterprise. On law and order, issues like that, you know, the last government was as authoritarian as any government in recent times. And on recent, you know, Ed Balls' recent position on effectively accepting any reductions in spending the present government makes. Well, I think what it was. It was hard to tell what the policy was, but as I understood it, the policy was, we'll accept the world we inherit, which means accepting the reductions in spending that have been made. We may then go somewhere else, but we kind of start, accept that as a starting one. The point I'm trying to get at is that, well, I think what the question is driving at is that, looked at for most people who don't spend, don't spend all their life looking at politics, this doesn't look like a big idea. You, you're describing it as a big ideological gap. It doesn't really look like that to most people. It just looks like, well, you know, all the parties now say the same. That's the thing. Well, is that the origin? Is that what you're yeah, you know, you get to your yeah. question? On most policies, it's law and order is the same. You know, Cameron's never going to stand up and say, I hate the, the poor. It's just different ways of expressing it. Or, no, he's just saying um, about killing them. There is the difference. At, top and the leaders, but 
if you look further and further down. Well, you can see what you can see the origin of the question. I can see the origin of the question, but I, I think it's it's based on on false premises, if if you don't mind me saying so. <coughs> but start just picking up your point, Tony. What else are Ed Miliband and Ed Balls to say except that we will inherit if we win the 2015 election an appalling mess? I think what they were saying, uh, and uh, you know, if, at least if I can put it this way, and Bowman will pull me up if you don't think that I'm expressing it fairly, but that uh, the party's policy is to say, look, you cannot get elected on a platform in 2015 um, when the economy will still be in the mess as the, as the, the government's own forecasts have said and Osborne's been forced to admit and they'll still be cutting and they'll still be trying to reduce the deficit which will still probably get, be getting worse um, that you can't just suddenly say we're going to reverse every one of the cuts that, we, that, that we're trying to oppose at the moment we would not be doing this because we think it's wrong and it's actually producing high unemployment and the deficit's rising and all of those kind of Keynesian orthodoxies and truisms but you know, you get into you get into the election. Anybody trying to get elected in 2015, saying we'll just reverse all of this, like next year, it's just not credible. That's the point he was making. Let's bring Paul Kelly in here because he's itching. <coughs> I, I just wanted to pick up on on this. It's an it's another attempt at the same. I mean, what I see from all the all the parties are variations on supply side solutions to the problems that we face and a commitment to more or less the same level of GDP that the state takes. There's, there's very little debate on expanding the size of the state in relation to the economy. And all the other policies are to do with you know, upskilling people to, to make them compete more in the global economy. So the discourse is still one of globalization. Now that, you know, you, there's neoliberal versions of globalization, but we're all stuck with this. And you too have mentioned, you know, how difficult it is to deal with the demand side issue and the equality question in circumstances of globalization. So, so are we stuck with globalization? And does that constrain our policy so that every party is going to have some technical variations on how you do this supply side stuff? Or is there something more radical? And that, that's, answer, that's the problem. You'll get plenty of time for is, is your question directly related? I'll take one more. It was about the economy. All right, go on. Let's take that, and then we'll come back. You can have the last say, I promise. Uh, thank you very much. Sorry, my name's John Russell. I'm a Liberal Democrat. Um, just on the economy, aren't, aren't you sort of off message with, with what Ed's saying on the economy? I mean, isn't the truth that actually what Ed is saying is much more than we just simply can't reverse the cuts and we come to power. What he's actually saying is that fundamentally there's not actually that much difference between the new Labour Party policy on the economy and, you know, the coalition policy. I mean, in truth, the, the, the amount of budget cuts Labour had said they would make and what the coalition are making are actually reasonably similar, aren't they? No, that's your chance, sorry. No, no, uh, well, first of all, uh, I come back to your point and it's associated. I mean, globalisation is a reality. The question is, do you just allow it to trample all over you, or do you try and as work as best you can and, and use the power of government as best you can to make sure that you retain essential elements of a civilised society rather than leaving it you know, a prey to just global movements of capital in, in search of the cheapest, um, the cheapest price? 
so you know, I d but I don't accept that having accepted that reality, that therefore there's no room for a difference, or there isn't a, the opportunity for a progressive social democratic program. I think there is, and I think there's a, still an enormous potential for it. And I think that the the right dominance in Europe at the moment, which is reflected here in Britain as well, is going to is going to fail. You can't just keep pushing austerity down people's throats, as, the, as everybody's finding in Greece, and expecting it to succeed. It isn't going to succeed. It's going to fall over. Uh, and potentially, you know, that could be quite dangerous. And then I'll come to your question. No, I mean, we set out a very, very different program for, as I said earlier, for reducing the deficit by half over a period of four years. I mean, your policy is getting rid of it entirely in five years. Well, it isn't working. It was never going to work. It's actually going, getting worse. Uh, and so, I mean, I think it's fundamentally different. And it isn't a few billion here or there. It's hundreds of billion. And in the end, if you suck demand out of an economy, and which is why I, I disagree with, with your point uh, as well, that I think, you know, where we would like to get back to is the kind of level of public provision that we had when we left office. Now, you can't achieve that probably in one term of the next Labour government. But that's the goal that you need to go for. I mean, who's, to, who's going to argue that there is sufficient resource being put into caring for the elderly? <coughs> who's going to say, I mean, this is the big demographic time bomb in our society, uh, is, a, is an, an ageing society and, and the need for a national care service like we have a national health service. Uh, who's to say that, you know, that, who's going to say that the problems of child poverty should be just left to get worse as they are at the present time. I think there's massive sort of work for a, a Labour government to do of a radically different kind to what this very right-wing government, forgive, forgive uh, our, our Liberal Democrat comrade over there, um, you know, is pursuing. Uh, and as I say, to finish, to finish the point, I think this is the big divide. Uh, difficult for Labour to get its voice heard and for Ed Miliband to get his voice heard in the kind of media din, which means that message that you sort of misinterpreted, Tony, um, <laughs> uh, didn't get cut across, so, whether mischievously or, or actually, I don't know, but um, didn't come sort of across entirely. Uh, we, we will increasingly, I think, get our, get our message across, and I think the next election's going to be a lot tighter than people think. Okay, we must uh, draw this to a conclusion. I, I mean, I'm sure if any of you want to come and uh, ask questions one to one, crucially, buy the book, which is in the nice pile uh, on the table outside. And uh, I know people will be happy to sign copies if you've already bought them or if you now go and buy one. So that's my uh, effort to sustain the book industry and indeed. Uh, your future, but, um, <laughs> but more serious. I don't think it depends on this book. Sometimes. <laughs> one, are you are you intending to? Uh, it's probably a bit early to ask this. Embarrassing. You're going to stay on in Parliament. Yep. Good. Right. Are we know that. Right. Future. Fine. Okay. I just like to say on all your behalf. I thought it was uh, we've had a, an engaged, elegant, and thoughtful uh, set of remarks from Peter Hayne. Uh, whatever your politics, I think you could say that it was a, a display of an understanding of the merit of plural politics in countries around the world, and also somebody with an extraordinary personal experience. I mean, it's often said today, well, politicians come, you know, 
never done a proper chart, no background, no hinterland, all of the kind of things. And I don't always agree with that, by the way, but it is sometimes said. I don't think you could say that about Peter Hain. And I'll give some additional thoughts, and we were talking about this before we came in, that um, it's all too easy for even modern history to slip away uh, even 20, 25 after, years after it's happened. And I'm sure uh, this book will uh, allow a large number of people in Britain to understand kind of motivations that drive some people to go into politics in the first place. So I'd like to thank you, uh, ask you to thank Peter Hayne for a fascinating evening uh, and to wish him the best of luck with his book.